Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Online at MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for uh, joining me today. I hope your week has been great. It's been uh, a wonderful week, and it's Friday already, and we've got a weekend coming up. I hope you get some rest, and I hope you uh, have a lot of uh, time to spend with the Lord, because it seems that if you get away from work and you can get alone and get with the Lord, it's going to help your heart, I think, after talking to uh, Gil Mertz last hour about unforgiveness and forgive your way to freedom, reconcile your past and reclaim your future was uh, his book. And it was a fascinating hour. We had so much great input from listeners. So thank you for sending questions and concerns. It, my heart is just heavy after listening to uh, some of the stories that listeners sent in in the last hour. And there's a lot of pain and woundedness and this, how do I forgive? And oh boy, it's a challenge. It's definitely a, um, a lot of work to forgive. But God calls us to do that, gives us the strength to do it. So I think that's what we have to focus on. All right, we're going to take a little break. Jared Wilson's going to um, join us. We'll talk about the book of Ruth. And then uh, Jeff Lucas is going to talk about uh, his book called Notorious Some of the Scoundrels of the Bible. It's going to be a great hour. Be right back. You have your people, the people who help you connect faith to life. When they show a simple trust, those people are your kids. When it's unconditional forgiveness, maybe it's your spouse. And when it's someone who serves and teaches and encourages, maybe it's your pastor. We all have people. At Faith Radio, we are a collection of those people growing together every day in the ways of grace and hope and truth. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. Declaring truth. Praising God. Faith Radio. love the book of Ruth, and if you have studied it for any amount of time, you love it too. And Jared C. Wilson is a uh, author and professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College, has written a number of books uh, like, uh, for example, The Gospel-Driven Church. We've talked to him about that. The Imperfect Disciple, which is another outstanding book, and Supernatural Power for Everyday People. He is a favorite guest of mine, and he's here to talk about his new book, Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. Jared, welcome back. Bill, thanks so much for having me back. Yeah. It's always good to be with you. Well, I appreciate you and your work, and I just love the Book of Ruth. So 
let's uh, let's jump into it. Um, in your okay. introduction, you write that uh, Ruth has got a strong connection to your own family. I do. Did I say it has a strong connection to my own family? Well, I sort of <laughs> took some liberty there. I, I'm just trying to <laughs> provoke you a little bit to see how you respond. <laughs> well, it's a it's a connection to everyone's family, I think, um, when you see it in the in the context of the gospel storyline. Um, yeah, that really Ruth, the family story of Ruth is yeah. actually the the family story of, of every believer. Yeah, I'm just having a little fun with you. A lot of people look at <laughs> a lot of people look at Ruth and see it as this uh, wonderful love story. Well, and it is, uh, you know, you, you know, that's one of the approaches I take in the book is to say it is a love story, but not the way you think. We're we're prone to taking the story of Ruth, and uh, as a friend of mine said recently, um, you know, the church traditions he grew up in. Ruth turned into kind of a, a a singles manual for finding a <laughs> uh, you know for finding a mate. So like yeah. how to find your Boaz kind of thing. And certainly there's some things you can apply uh, in that regard in the book, but it's it's more a, about a love story um, within the church. I think you see the relationships between uh, Ruth and Naomi, and certainly Ruth and Boaz, and so on. Uh, but in in the larger context. Uh, what it shows us is really the commitment that that God makes through Christ to the church. So it, it really is a picture, a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. So why was Ruth so devoted to Naomi? I mean, she she had an opportunity to, to take a very different direction and go a very different path, and she chose otherwise. Yeah, you know, in, in the text, we don't have um, a whole lot of indications. If we're being cynical, we could say the prospect of going back to her home country of Moab on her own um, was more daunting than following Naomi into a place that was not her home. Um, but that's a cynical reading. I, I, I think um, what we do have indication of is that she really loved Naomi and um, maybe that kind of skewers some of the modern ways, you know, we think of our of, of our mothers-in-law. But <laughs> but, uh, you know, Ruth, uh, when she makes that that vow in the beginning, to me, that's the first picture of of love there, the commitment that it's it's almost, you know, for better or for worse. Um, you know, you've got three widows um, who are there and one of them determines to go back home or to leave. And but Ruth says, no, I, I'm I'm so um, committed to this family. And we know spiritually she is um, is committed to uh, Naomi's God and to um, the one true God, Yahweh. So she says to Naomi, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And that may be that we're going to go die. But if we're going to go die, we're going to go die together. Um, so I, I think it's just a, it's a familial love. It's a spiritual love that she has, um, and it's one of the you know um, early pictures we get that helps us see the kind of relationships we have to each other in the church, right? So we're not bound together by blood, uh, except the blood of Christ. And so we say to people who have different backgrounds that we're not related to, "Hey, we're family, and where you go, I'm going to go. I'm going to I'm going to covenant with you uh, because the Lord has brought us together." Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that the book of Ruth has this powerful love relationship and that God has chosen it to be illustrated between a woman um, and a daughter-in-law. Yeah, that, isn't that interesting? That it's, is it's so somewhat subversive. <laughs> interesting. So what, what kind of surprises did you discover in your studies? Because that, again, like we just said, seems kind of unusual. 
Yeah, you know, well, I think, you know, some of the things that you see um, as you study the the whole book is um, Naomi at times can feel for reading it through the modern lens and and sort of the the cliche or the, you know, the caricature of the controlling mother-in-law and that sort of thing. Um, Naomi can seem somewhat manipulative or self-interested in all the things she's sending Ruth out to do and you know, telling her how to approach Boaz and all these sorts of things. Um, but that's really a cynical reading of, of the text. And certainly Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are all sinners. So, you know, they're not, you know, you know they're not perfect people. They're not uh, completely void of some kind of self-interest uh, or self-inclination. And yet we really, um, I think one reason the Lord has inspired this book and preserved it to be included in the canon is that it's set against the backdrop of the book of Judges, which, um, you know, is so, uh, it, it, it is dark. It shows what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. The result is bloodshed and perversion, um, just, you know, godlessness run amok. And Ruth is this little love story set against that that dark backdrop. And you have these characters who, really do care for each other. I really, you know, when you look at it um, in, in its own context and against that backdrop, Naomi really does want what's best for Ruth. And certainly she knows that she will benefit if, if, if Ruth benefits, but she really does care for her daughter-in-law. She really does want her um, to be safe. She wants her to be provided for. So you really do see this, um, in, in this godly affection and care for each other, just depicted in, in, in almost every character in the book. Mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated, Jared, in the first chapter of Ruth in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she said, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Yeah. What else yeah. do we, uh, what do we <laughs> learn from that? Well, you know, the first time I encountered that, and I preached through the book of Ruth uh, at, at my last pastorate, and it it struck me as sort of self-pitying <laughs> in the moment, you know, sort of a Debbie Downer that Naomi is, is sort of like, uh, you know, the Lord has made me very bitter. Let's let's dwell on that. Uh, but now I see it, um, you know, it's just very plain. Naomi is just sort of uh, lamenting uh, what has happened in her life. And in a way, by asking to be called that, um, she is sort of embracing the sovereignty of God, having led her into this difficulty. She doesn't understand, uh, you know, why God would, uh, you know, sovereignly, you know, orchestrate this, uh, this pain that she's been through and her lot in life. And yet by making that statement, she's really in effect saying what the Lord wants for me is, is what I will have and, and, and what I am. So uh, it's, it's all the more reason for her to find some joy when, uh, the prospects begin to look up, actually. And so it, it really sets up the story, um, which is a historical story. It's not, uh, you know, imaginative, uh, you know, imaginative or, or, or fiction. Mm-hmm. But in terms of storytelling, the Lord has really told a great story um, in orchestrating this historical event. And really that sets up, that, that bitterness moment sets up the brightness and the joy and the sweetness of what comes next. Well, I appreciate your take on that, because when I read, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Ouch. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, she has a very high she has a very high view of God's sovereignty, doesn't she? Yes, yeah, she does. Yeah. All right, I want to talk. Yeah, about, it's it's somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Jared, I want to talk about uh, the way the book is laid out, and it's uh, it's really a, a gospel centered um, series, and we're going to be able to go through this and treat it like a Bible study, and I think it's about an eight week course. Is that right? That's right. It Good. Is, let's, yes. let's talk about that after the break. Jared C. Wilson is my guest, and the book we're talking about is his new one called Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. We'll take a short break and be right back. My guest is Jared uh, C. Wilson. He's written uh, many books. The one we're chatting about today is his latest one called Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. Now, how did you lay this out? This is uh, like a Bible study over the course of a couple months? Uh, it is. It's uh, essentially an eight session, so it could be spaced out over eight uh, over eight weeks. Um, or, you know, if you met less frequently, it would certainly take longer than that. But it's designed to be conducted uh, generally in, in eight weeks, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Boaz. He, uh, okay. he, he's obviously a big central character, and he um, has got such noble character. And for a lot of men, he is their go-to hero, one of the go-to heroes in the Bible. Yes. Well, and for good reason, because he um, is one of the few um, men that we see depicted, in particular in the Old Testament, um, for which uh, we, d- we don't see— um, much to criticize him for. He, he doesn't appear to have uh, very many flaws, or uh, if any. He's not depicted uh, in the book. Now, certainly, again, we know he's a sinner um, because he's a human being, uh, but the picture we have of him uh, is a very noble picture. He really sort of stands out and, um, you know, against the backdrop of the Old Testament. And, um, yeah, he. so one thing the book says about him is— um, you know, he says that he, he, he does things, as, you know, as God lives, he makes these commitments. And which is really interesting because it's, it, it can be a figure of speech, you know, to say something like, well, as surely as God lives, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. But theologically, it is um, really, a, uh, you know, what dictates or directs how Boaz lives his life. So as, as a man of means with wealth and lots of uh, servants and the, the owner of, of, of uh, a lot of land— and certainly a lot of prospects uh, as a man who is of marriageable age and that sort of thing. Um, he he lives his life as if God is real and God is alive, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, that's how I kind of take the phrase, as God lives, is it really says something about Boaz, is he, he, he wants the reality of God to um, lay over everything that he, that he says and does. So he's a man who, who conducts his affairs— uh, as if God is true, and that God is judge, and that God is living and active. Mm-hmm. Jared, I'd love for you to walk us through the process, your understanding through what God has revealed to you in your study of Ruth, how Ruth handled herself, where at the advice of her mother-in-law, Naomi, get off your morning clothes, put on your fancy clothes, doll up a little bit, put some perfume on, and now sit at his feet. Yeah. How do we, what? how do we, uh, what do we learn from that? 
Yeah, there's a lot of speculation um, about that passage. Um, some of it um, may be, uh, on, you know, they may be onto something. Um, I personally do not see anything untoward in in that event. If anything, I see a kind of naivete. Uh, there are some who think euphemistically uh, Naomi has sent Ruth to effectively seduce Boaz sexually. I I don't think we have an indication. I never saw from that. the text. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, some scholars say that, but the Bible really doesn't have any problem um, saying when people are engaging in that kind of behavior. So, you know, to veil it here doesn't make much sense. So, um, I think it's a completely chaste encounter. Um, I, you know, I don't think uh, you know Ruth is going to try to you know seduce Boaz or she's been manipulated by Naomi to try to do that or anything like that. Um, it, it really is a symbolic encounter of essentially asking him to take care of her and to cover her. Um, and then you see the way Boaz looks out for her. So if Boaz had any kind of, um, you know, sexual intention uh, in his regard for her or his, uh, you know, design for her, um, he immediately looks after her reputation because she has come in the, uh, at nighttime and I think on her part, she's just really naive about this whole thing. And um, and she's trusting that he's not going to take advantage of her, that he, you know, he's not looking to exploit her. He has proven himself to be a man of noble character and he continues to do that. So he basically um, tries to protect her, uh, her reputation or any kind of uh, untoward speculation about um, what's taking place. And um, and you see that in, in all of his regard for her in, in that he wants her to stay close uh, to his workers so that she'll be safe when she's out working and, um, and, and all those sorts of things. But really what the moment is, um, is what the text says, which is that she's going to present herself to him and basically to ask for his coverage, um, his protection, and ultimately for his hand in marriage that he would look kindly upon her and, and want to be her kinsman redeemer. Yeah, because uh, Boaz certainly went through the process properly by reaching out to her kinsman redeemer and giving him the first uh, choice, right? Yeah, you know, that. what's interesting is that's one of the, um, the most neglected parts of the whole story, um, and yet it is one of the clearest pictures of kind of the gospel law dynamic that plays in, in our life and in, 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 the, in the dynamic of salvation, which is for each of us, uh, we are in need of redemption. Yes, we we are uh, sinners who fall short of the glory of God, and and we need to be rescued. We need to be saved. And the closest redeemer um, to us is the law of God. It speaks. Um, you know, we we have an obligation to it, and it has an obligation to us. And yet, the law cannot redeem us. And the, um, you know, so enter now Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law uh, to the T. You know, he 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 completes it himself, and he becomes the redeemer um, for us that the law cannot be by fulfilling the law himself, and then imputing his own righteousness to us, uh, to those who by faith repent of their sin and and trust in him. And so that that picture at the end uh, is really a beautiful um, kind of foreshadow of the design that God has. Uh, for us in salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, the law tells us what to do, but also reveals that we cannot do it perfectly, that w- we need an alien righteousness, that the closest uh, kinsman to us, the tutor, as Paul says in Galatians, that the law is, 
Um, it is training us, but it's also teaching us to yearn for redemption that cannot come from the law. It has to come from uh, Jesus Christ himself. Yeah, Jared, as we go into the first chapter of Ruth, we find out that Naomi is getting increasingly bitter, and but at the end she finds great joy through the redemption. There's got to be a bigger lesson for us to learn uh, from Naomi here. Yeah, you know, so it really is um, one of those stories that has, uh, it, it, it goes from the worst that you would think it could possibly be. Um, I don't know if Naomi can even conceive of her life having any upside. You know, once you get to the point of you've lost your husband, you've lost your sons, uh, your daughters-in-law um, are from a different culture, and, um, you know, you, you are on the verge of, uh, of starvation and you're poor. And so for Naomi, the story begins with that sense of bitterness uh, and, you know, how could things possibly get any worse? And then it just gradually builds as the Lord begins to navigate um, Ruth and Naomi both um, through one blessing after another. And then the ending scene, the, the book closes uh, with uh, Naomi holding her her grandson there on her lap, and uh, she has come full circle. The Lord has uh, fully redeemed her story in that moment, and by virtue of, of the lineage that uh, Ruth and Boaz uh, in, in, in their marriage are now creating, um, our story bec- uh, comes full circle, and it will be fully redeemed because the Messiah comes uh, through their heritage. Mm-hmm. All right, Jared, I want to give my listeners a nice big tease. There are five uh, blessings found in the Book of Ruth, which you convey are part of the book's key messages. Now, we don't have time for five, but we have time for one. Can you share maybe one of those blessings? Yeah, one of the blessings is it teaches us um, how we are to um, love each other, that we would have a sort of a sacrificial um, connection to each other and, and, and want the best for each other. And the blessing really is that this is how, um, Christ has loved us. And so because Christ gives us the blessing of himself, we are able then we are freed and empowered to be able to bless others. Awesome. Now, if you get a hold of this book, you, do, you can do it by yourself. You can do an independent study, can't you? You don't need to be in a group, right? No. Yeah. You can certainly do it, um, as part of your daily devotions or yep. your, um, yeah, your intentional time as a as a follower of Christ. Yeah. yeah. So once again, Jared, uh, nice job on Ruth, redemption, uh, redemption for the broken. This is a a great study, and you've done once again an awesome job. Thank you very much, Bill. And, Thank yeah. you. And Jared, if you ever run into one of those scholar friends of yours that say that Ruth <laughs> went to seduce Boaz, tell them they're not yeah. welcome on my show. Okay, I will tell Save them that me time. for sure. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> Jared, yeah. Jared C. Wilson has been my guest, and his book, Ruth, Redemption for the Broken. We'll take a short break and be right back.
I've got a book in my hand called Notorious, an integrated study. I'm not sure what the word integrated means, but I like it. An integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture, written by Jeff Lucas. Jeff is an author, a radio host, and an all-around funny guy. Jeff, welcome. Great to be with you both. Thank you. Yeah, I love your approach. I like you. I liked you instantly, and uh, I like uh, what you've got in this book. Nicely Thank done. You. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed creating this, Bill, because I think sometimes these characters are somewhat overlooked. They're just kind of like secondary characters in the major narrative. But we can learn a lot from the bad guys, not least not following the pathway that they went down. So. Yeah, it's just been a really enjoyable experience. Quite sobering too at times. Yeah, because um, yeah, but, was, but a good study. Jeff, was there any one villain in particular that kind of intrigued you, and then you started to study, 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 and you thought, "Hey, let's look at some of the other villains while I'm at it." Well, I think that um, Mikal, I think, is the way that we pronounce her name, Mikal, the daughter of Saul. You remember that story when uh, David danced before the Lord, and uh, apparently. It's just possible the linen ephod slipped, which is always awkward. And uh, she was rather offended um, by that. And I just think she's a, not only an intriguing character, Bill, but she's got a lot to say to Christians. Because I think, I think we Christians can be quite good at perfecting the art of being offended. Um, you know, you see this in church life. Um, some people go to church to actually get offended, and they're offended if they're not offended. And I mean, let's face it, if you've been around church for a while, and I love I love the church, but if you want something to be offended about, then just join a church, really, because there's plenty of scope. But what can happen is that we can weaponize offense, which is what she did, and we can we can do the pouting lip routine, and suddenly we become the victim, while all of the time really manipulating our way into being the victor, which is pretty shrewd and somewhat mean. So, yeah, as, I mean, I've been a pastor for over 40 years, and I've I've met some amazing, wonderful people, and I've also met a few people, maybe you bumped into them as well, who've kind of been offended since birth. They got upset with the midwife, you know, don't, <laughs> don't slap me, honey. So, uh, so yeah, I think, I think she's a very a very relevant character. I'm not sure about the way David treated her, because he basically said, I'm going to just go ahead and do this, which I think is the biblical equivalent of you can stick this in your pipe and smoke it. Right. But nevertheless, it's an intriguing episode. Now, I find the premise, uh, Jeff, interesting how, of course, you being a pastor for 40 years, you're going to have more people coming to you being offended. And for many, I'm sure their default response is, I need things to be just right, and if they're not right, I'm going to be offended. Yeah, and often what they really mean as well, well, there's a couple of things, Bill. What they often mean is, I want things to be done my way. Yeah, I think, And yeah. you're not doing it my way. In fact, one of the other characters in the study, which is the, the, is Cain in the Cain and Abel story, which is which is really about consumerist worship. You know, I, I, I'm going, I just want to worship God my way. I don't like that song. The drums are too loud. Um, and and then the next step with that is, and I'm pretty sure God doesn't like the song or the drums as well. And so I think often what fuels our offense, it's not necessarily what's right or wrong. It's what we like or we don't like. And in, I think in, in some circles, offending someone is almost like the ultimate sin. 
it places those in leadership in a relatively impossible situation. It's a bit like the person who says, I'm not being fed by the sermons. Well, how, how do you quantify that? You can't use a scientific instrument to measure feeding capacity of the sermon. Mm-hmm. And so you're in a lose-lose situation. And I think, frankly, you know, a, quite a lot of this kind of behavior can, can go on. But it all looks rather pious. Even as we're offended, we can make ourselves feel like we're actually defending God rather than personally offended about our preferences. Yeah. Jeff, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about Cain, kind of a villain and or a scoundrel yeah. or a rogue or a scallywag, whatever we want to call him. Yeah, I'm always, I'm yeah. always, I'm always amused by the, uh, the bumper sticker that I see that says, hate is not a family value. And then I think, well, I remember when there's only one family on earth and in that family there was a murder. Seems like hate yeah. is a family value. Absolutely right. And isn't it one of the things that I celebrate about Scripture is the fact that it's not loaded full of airbrushed, <clears throat> excuse me, airbrushed grinning heroes who always get it right. I think the other thing, Bill, is that often we categorize people and they're either bad or they're good. Um, they're sound or they're unsound. And in some of these villains, they're rather obviously bad. I mean, there's not much, there's not much redemption in Jezebel and Herod the Great wasn't so great. But with the Cain and Abel story, with some of the other stories, it wasn't just that they were totally bad. They just did some bad things. And so with Cain, it's one of those stories in the Bible that I come to, and frankly, I don't like it. And I think it's okay to not like everything that's in scripture. I don't think there's anything heretical about struggling with with truth, if you will. But I think Cain, his problem, most commentators say, was that he wanted to worship God his way. If you dig deeply into the story, it seems that that was the root of God rejecting his offering. Because at first glance, it all seems a bit arbitrary, really. But Cain seems to, seems to want to do things his way. And again, in in today's church, consumerism can be such a problem, and worship can become a consumer item where preferences are very definitely expressed. And then what we do is we forget that the heart of worship is to bring ourselves as an offering to God. It, yeah, there's some feel-good factor in that, and, and we are strengthened and edified as we get together, sing our songs, pray our prayers. But ultimately, it's not just, and it's certainly not primarily about us. And so I think Cain has got a lot to say um, in his negative examples. And Bill, I'd just say this as well, because some people said to me, why focus on the villains? You know, surely we should be focusing on the good people. Well, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the negative example of Israel with their wanderings and meanderings and forgetting who God was. And Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us that we can learn from their negative example. So I kind of applied that principle across the board and have done that with these various um, biblical nasties, if you like. Yeah, and beautifully done. So, Jeff, you mentioned that, that the antagonists of the Bible are more like us than we would think. Maybe you would explain that some. Well, I, I, I think often we can forget our capacity either for great good and nobility or for great evil. Um, I was preaching at a men's conference recently, and we were talking about morality, and, and, and I found myself making the statement that um, some of us have never had an affair, and it's not because we're 
massively more noble than the guy who does. Um, the reality is that some of us have not had the opportunity yet, and therefore we haven't been tested. Now, it went a little bit quiet when I said that, but I think a recognition of our own fragility, um, of our own potential to do, frankly, some pretty monstrous things if we were given the opportunity or if we were angry enough or tempted enough. I think if we're not careful, we can, we can, it comes back to this categorization thing. We can just say they're bad people. Well, actually, most people don't start off their day saying, I'm going to do something absolutely horrendous. There are people seriously committed to an evil lifestyle, but I think it's a good thing for us to be aware of the potential that there is in us all to do things that are wonderful or really terrible. And that awareness can keep us on the straight and narrow. It's a very interesting observation you made in front of those men. And it is true, people are tested in different ways. And it's how you respond in those times of testing. But not everyone is up against the same kinds of tests. Exactly. And Another character I look at in, in, in this study, and, and it's an integrated study, Bill, in that it's like this, it's designed for small group use, with, uh, but with some video drop-ins and, and some Bible study notes and ser- even sermon outlines so that a, a church can move through this together. Potiphar's wife comes up. I mean, I feel, I, I feel like 1% sympathy for her Mm-hmm. Because she's not even named in the Bible, she's just simply Potiphar's wife. But the sympathy dies when, even as a result of her relentless attempts at seduction, um, Joseph doesn't give way. And then, of course, she turns around and throws accusation at him anyway. So there's nothing much redemptive in in her. But again, it's a portrait that shows us that. Not only do we have the potential for bad, but the potential for great and good choices when tested. And then, like Saul the persecutors in the study, of course, Saul the persecutor ended up being the Apostle Paul, who gave us a third of the New Testament and lived such an amazing life. So, so there's great hope here to say, whatever our struggles, fragilities, weaknesses, we we can change as we cooperate daily with the Holy Spirit, make good choices, but also realize that we have the capacity as well to do some rather stupid, foolish, and destructive things also. Mm -hmm. Jeff, I would love for you to talk a little bit about uh, Jezebel. Yeah, I mean, Jezebel, uh, ironically, uh, although she's sort of famous as the Cruella de Vil of of the Old Testament bill, I think she's got a lot to say to people like me, uh, perhaps, you know, you, it, people who have got um, influence, maybe power, um, because I don't, think, I don't think often that we do so well with power as we should. Christians generally do better when we're in the minority mm-hmm. and when we're on the edge. And we don't do so well when we find ourselves in the corridors of power. Jezebel's family line was loaded with with soaked in blood her father killed his own brother to become a a king in the the nation of Tyre and so she'd grown up with this completely murderous dysfunctional family context she's a purveyor of fear so she wants to take Elijah out 
And so she sends him a messenger to say, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. Notice, Bill, she doesn't send an assassin. She doesn't have to because fear is a devastating weapon that can be equally, well, not equally effective because if the assassin arrives, you don't have a pulse anymore. But fear can be such a missile. And so she sends a messenger to threaten him. And this guy who's he's done pretty well. I mean, you know, he's raised the dead. He's He's been fed by spitting ravens for quite a long while, called down fire from heaven. So he's got a pretty good track record. And yet he totally crumbles um, in the face of that fear. And, and the only prayer he can pray is a prayer for death, which is, you know, you, you might see an assortment of prayers on the, the average Christian refrigerator, but Lord, kill me now. Amen. He's not normally among them. And that's where Elijah ends up. That speaks to me um, as someone who in Christian leadership spent about a year in clinical depression, not only feeling bad, but feeling bad because I felt bad. That story really speaks to me. But the powerhouse behind his gloom and sadness was this Jezebel woman who totally manipulated and misused power. As a pastor in a church, I am conscious that when that person asks me an awkward question from the congregation, if I want to, I can just dismiss them as being divisive. Uh, they're threatening the unity of the church. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can label them and tag them and effectively silence them by just applying that little tag to them. And so spiritual abuse, the misuse of power, all of this is not just about um, a woman with dark eyeshadow sitting in uh, a palace with Ahab, her husband, but it also speaks to those of us who, in whatever context, we exercise influence and power ourselves. That's really interesting, Jeff. Jeff Lucas is my guest. I'm going to take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more. His book is called Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. We'll be right back. the show. I'm so glad to have Jeff Lucas as my guest. He's written a book called Notorious, a study of the rogue scoundrels and scallywags of scripture. And I think uh, of when, Jeff, right before we went to break, you were talking about power and how Christians don't always do well with power, and yet we're so attracted to it. It's just something that's um, uh, most Christian men in particular are attracted to. And even if we want to be in a servant's role, we want to be called a servant leader. We, we just can't be a servant, can we? Right. And it, it's, it is, uh, I think it's especially dangerous. I mean, power is dangerous anyway. You know, the old quote about absolute power and all of that corrupting absolutely. But, but it's even worse in a spiritual context because we can, if I can, if I can express this somewhat crudely, Bill, we can drag God into our authority structure. And uh, that's a very potent mix when you've got a bullying leader who's insecure and can't cope with someone with a brain cell asking them a question, who can then shut that person down. And, I, and, and, and frankly, 
I've done this. And um, I remember in my early years as a church planter um, back in England, you probably noticed I got this accent thing. It's just recently been with. Yeah, I just got had a successful accent refurbishment procedure back in England, so it's fairly fresh and new again. But back there, um, you know, we had a lady in our church who wanted to know why men did all the stuff in the church, and that was the that was the theological cultural package that had been handed to me as a young pastor, and uh, I didn't like her question, and her question was completely reasonable. And what I did is I kind of systematically shut her down and tagged her as just being you know, awkward. She's difficult. She's divisive, which is not 500 yards from let's burn the witch. I mean, it was <laughs> it was horrendous. And I'm glad to say that I go when I go back to the UK, I preach in the church where that lady and her husband are now and have been able actually 20 years ago to say, I am so sorry about the way that I misused my position because I found you to be awkward. And actually, she was totally right, but I just um, misused power in order to avoid the difficult questions. And so I think this stuff is very relevant for all of us at whatever context of power, in whatever context of power we have. Mm -hmm. I think if I were to ask people around the office, name one of the rogues, in the Bible, I bet a lot of people might say Judas Iscariot. Yeah, and uh, he's a such a difficult character, isn't he? Oh, in yeah. That, you know, uh, and there are all kinds of theological avenues you go down about his position and did he have to do it and predestination and all of that. And I'm gonna, not going to try and answer that in 20 seconds, but I think looking at his character again... I came away from thinking with with the thought that I'm wondering whether Judas was actually trying to manage Jesus. There were some commentators who would who would say that Judas was probably desperately upset that Jesus was not going to be the military messiah who would kick out the nasty Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there was that expectation throughout from these good Jewish boys who were his disciples, Jesus' disciples. And so some would suggest that Judas set up the betrayal and the arrest because he wanted to spark a confrontation between Jesus and the authorities, which would ultimately um, push Jesus into a place of being that Messiah who would liberate Israel. In other words, putting it bluntly, perhaps Judas did what he did, not just because he wanted the money, um, but because he wanted to manage Jesus. Um, I read a book by a guy called Donald McCullough. It's one of my favorite authors. And he talks, one of the subtitles of his book um, was The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. Well, wow, isn't that surely um, a threat to us that we feel like we have the right to, to manage God, to demand of God, and I think some of the extremes or some of the faith prosperity stuff that's been packaged and dispensed liberally over the years does that. But you don't have to be a grinning TV evangelist, um, you know, uh, to do that stuff. It's possible for all of us to try to manage God. And then um, when we're disappointed, we stomp off in a huff 
you know, Jonah style and park ourselves firmly outside of the revival town that was Nineveh. <laughs> so this um, submission to God, which of course none of us find easy, I think Judas speaks to us uh, about that. Again, Bill, undeniably with the suicide um, that takes place, again, it poignantly speaks to such a challenge that there is as well in today's culture with, with hopelessness and despair and the need for us in, in church life to, to talk about these things honestly. Um, so, yeah, again, uh, a character who in different ways is really relevant for us. Mm-hmm. I think of Judas, uh, Jeff, and then I think that many of us uh, come to God as mercenaries. We, we, we hope that God cooperates with our program and we want something from him. Absolutely. And isn't it true that um, as Christians, we need to go through the glorious academy of disillusionment? (laughs) I used to to fear disillusionment, Bill, I thought, because it it seems like just it's pretty closely related to cynicism. And I fear cynicism with with a great terror. Um, But when you're disillusioned about something, you're divested of an illusion. Uh, we're all born into an illusion that we're the center of the universe. So, you know, when you're three months old, if you're hungry, you just scream. And if you need the bathroom, you just go. You try doing that when you're 25, it's not going to work out well for you. You've been divested of the illusion that you're the center of the universe. And I think we need disillusionment in church. It's a bunch of broken people who are gradually being put back together in marriage because Hollywood never talks about people drooling on the pillow or um, or having morning breath or the other glorious things that accompany real life. Mm-hmm. But we need that with God too. We need, we need to be healthily disillusioned and led away from the idea that somehow he is a cosmic vending machine whose primary purpose is just to give us what we want. And maybe the pathway to maturity has to pass through disillusionment if we're going to really grow up in God. Mm-hmm. Jeff, the way you've laid the book out, it creates a, a Bible study that you, I assume, can do either individually or in a group setting. Yeah, um, there's either way. I mean, I've I've written this specific, well, not specifically, but with definitely with small group in mind because. There are some discussion starters there, but there's absolutely no reason why the individual couldn't do this. Daily Bible reading notes, so uh, somebody could follow this um, with a kind of daily injection, if you like, of further study. And then with some video pieces, and the idea behind that, Bill, is that small groups can do this without a leader having to do loads of work. There's a 10 or 12-minute drop-in from a kind of FBI situation room type setting that we've created, and then sermon outlines as well, and even slide um, slides, PowerPoint-type slides, so that if a church wanted to move through the material together, then they could uh, they could do a nine, ten-week, whatever it is, series um, based around all of this. No, I really appreciate uh, the work where the study and discussion questions are available, and you've got uh, challenges, and you've got... Uh, uh, topics to ponder, and it's really well laid out, and it's uh, it's going to be a great study for whoever is going to pick this book up and and also get the videos. It's uh, I think it's I think it's very nicely laid out, Jeff. You did a great job on this. 
appreciate it, Bill. Thank you, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about it today. Yeah, you've been a delight. Uh, Jeff Lucas has been my guest, and again, the book is called Notorious, an integrated study of the rogue scoundrels and scallywags of Scripture. That wraps up our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for supporting Faith Radio. I hope you have a great weekend. That's all until Monday, so let's ring the bell. Have a great weekend. I'll see you Monday. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.